As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota, Danny Abdel Jabbar. What's up, brother? How you doing? What's up, man? Chilling as per usual. How about you? Um, you know, feeling shitty as always. Still not getting over that uh, flu-like symptoms. I think it's gotten worse. To be completely honest, Jesus, the weather has gotten worse. Seriously, you know, I think I got it from the Patriots, the New England <laughs> Tom Patriots. Tom Brady gave it right to me. Tom Brady didn't get the flu. He doesn't get he doesn't get sick because he's an android. Um, <laughs> there was a couple of players from the Patriots who were sick about a week and a half ago with the flu. So, I think I got it from them. So even even though I haven't been in the same the state as them in, uh, in the <laughs> past couple in the past week or week and a half, yeah, I think I'm blaming it on the Patriots as I blame all my problems. Cool, but yeah, everyone's got the <laughs> flu, so I apologize if my voice sounds a little raspy right now. Everyone is fucking sick. And um, I am not, I guess I'm no exception to that rule. But um, I'm glad you're safe with that shooting in New Jersey. Yeah, dude, I mean, like, I obviously live in Brooklyn, but... Uh, I know, know, but you're, you're family and Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Buddy, buddy of mine um, is a cop in New Jersey, and he immediately told me about it. And it was pretty crazy. It sounds like some cops might, might have died from it. I, I haven't read the newest articles on it, but, you know, fucking shootings, man. They happen. But let's talk a little bit about shit we're not going to talk about. <laughs> so what's shit that we're not going to talk about today? Uh, well, you know, I think big news this week is that the articles of impeachment have been drawn. Um, so that's a thing now. That is a thing now. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like they're going to vote on it as early as next week. And they settled on like, um, you know, he abused his power and he obstructed justice. So we'll see how that goes. I guess we will. I kind of checked out on the impeachment hearings. I know. You checked out before it started. <laughs> I checked out before it started. But I don't have the energy or bandwidth uh, to jump back into that into that mess right now. Yeah, for sure. Tell me tell me after the hearing. After after they vote, I'll talk about it again. But for now, <laughs> yeah, we'll I just don't. I can't find I can't follow all the drama right now because it's been kind of I've tried to check in and, and read some sources and watch some stuff on it. But I'm just like, oh, it's just all politics. I don't I don't have the patience right now. I'll wait till it's over and, and uh, we can have a full bird's eye view in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's go back to to um, Pensacola, because if you all guys right. know, you guys probably know is that the person who who kill these naval officers these young naval officers um were what was a was a saudi it was a saudi national it was a, was in the saudi royal air force and it's weird it's pretty weird especially weird. because there was someone filming it who was also a saudi national and he was in a big group of other saudi nationals as well who were being trained on that base so it is a very weird thing and it's kind of funny because Trump 
kind of he tried to downplay the connection. He immediately yeah. said, "King Solomon is very sorry and is horrified, and the Saudis are very horrified about what happened." I have yeah. no doubt that many Saudis are right. probably pretty horrified about what happened. Mm-hmm. However, this is just another blow out of many blows over the past, really since the 1970s, of a terminless, hectic, back-and-forth relationship with the with the Magic Kingdom. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that sounds like... Sounds about right. <laughs> well, it's always highs and lows, and, and sometimes you get these reality... Well, they're not even reality ch- checks because there's been a history of violence, as we know, with Saudi nationals on American soil, right. a.k.a. 9-11. Mm-hmm. 15 out of the 19 hijackers mm-hmm. were Saudi Arabian. That's right. And, you know, this is fully... They're saying it's not a terrorist attack, but I don't know what else we would say. It's definitely a terrorist attack on American soil. The guy had a political motive. So if you guys haven't, the guy, he tweeted why he he did this prior to the shooting. And it was all about U.S. foreign policy and how the U.S. The US kills Muslims. And that was the reason why Osama bin Laden said he did 9-11. You know, for the, for the major reasons, for the sanctions on Iraq that killed... Almost a million uh, Iraqi children, the support for Israel, and the stationing of, of uh, troops near the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And those are the reasons why why Osama bin Laden said he did 9-11. So, there's a theme here. And you always have to remember, the Saudis, there's a connection between them and 9-11. There absolutely is, let alone that the hijackers, the majority of the hijackers were Saudi nationals, let alone that the people who planned it were Saudi nationals. There's actually direct connections between Saudi nationals, so Saudi intelligence officers and Saudi ambassadors, to 9-11 handlers of the hijackers. The 28 papers, for anyone who's read it, it links out the connection between Prince Bandar, his wife, and the Saudi handlers who were scheduling flight schools and and, and basically their handlers when, when these Saudi hijackers got on U.S. soil, obviously before the, the, the terrorist attack happened. However, Prince Bandar, who was a Saudi ambassador, he used his wife as an intermediary to fund the handlers of at least two of the hijackers. I mean, it, it not not to apologize for them or back them up, but like you could make the argument that these are all like one offs, right? But there's just too many connections. There's too many connections. Weak, like ar- they very very weak argument. And these weren't just these were these were handlers. Like these were people who were interacting with the hijackers on a not, on a regular basis, like getting them hotel rooms, uh, scheduling <laughs> who scheduled their flight schools. So I mean, I think Americans have every right to be suspicious or to be concerned when a Saudi national commits a crime like this on American soil. Right. But it's, all, it's all within the context of what's going on. It's too, all within the context of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Right. And, and at and, the very least, yeah, and I, I'm not saying this isolate. I mean, this isolated event. 
um, there's no proof or connection yet. I mean, this happened just recently that this is something that is part of some larger grand scheme. But you have to think that this is pretty weird. Right. The fact just that add it to the list of questionable shit. Add it, just add it to the, the list of many questionable things. You know, if you're let's just say if you're dating a girl who cheats on you or, or something or who has had a history of cheating on you or vice versa, if you're dating a guy who's cheated on you and, um, you know, let's just say the, the that your partner goes blank, like you can't you can't reach them for like a day when they're in Vegas. Add it to the list. Not saying that isolated incident means that they did something wrong. I'm just saying that Makes it's definitely suspicious. really weird. And the U.S., they detained all those other Saudi. There was over 100 of them, all those other Saudis in that flight school because they were watching a, they were watching a video of mass shootings prior to the attack. They were watching, they all got together and they watched a, a mass shooting video together. Very weird. It's fucked up. Very strange. It, it and, calls into question, like, the relationship that we have, you know, with Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's many things you know. besides that, like, of let course. alone these 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 acts of violence and this terrorism, let alone all that stuff. Just the fact that Saudi Arabia is a autocratic kingdom that treats their women and their minorities Pretty poorly. Hey, but hey, they made a strive recently. I heard that they uh, are now allowing men and women to enter a restaurant using the same door. Whoa! <laughs> uh, all right, sorry. Cancel everything liberal. I said. I regret everything I'm saying. Saudi, it is a. It is now one step closer to becoming the liberal uh, kingdom that we all dreamed of. Let's build a dis- Let's let's build a real magic kingdom there. And get some Mickey Mouse there, and and have our pro, all of our pro wrestling events in, at at Riyadh. Going Actually, forward. aren't a lot of like pro wrestling events happening in in Saudi Arabia now? Yeah, they they always have. They've had a pretty tight relationship with the WWE mm. for a while now. So mm. they, they have fights. They have um, like boxing matches there and wrestling mm-hmm. matches. They love it. Th- so I mean, yeah. that could be seen as a bond between. I always think those things are good when you import right. or export like a culture. sport yeah. or a culture to another mm-hmm. country because it just you can bond over that you can bond over it. Yeah, it's it's like uh, World Cup soccer. You know, I, yeah. I really like it because it's like a bunch of countries. Sometimes they don't like each other, but they all get together to play some soccer, and I think that's really cool. But regardless, it's weird. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go on to some of the other things that we're going to talk about today. So we're going to be talking about the... Well, first, let me tell you about the most useful app on my phone. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. There is an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser, Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Successful people like business leaders are well-known for reading lots of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you, who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute on your lunch break, or while you exercise. And I do that pretty much every single day, and I 100% recommend it. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive growing library from self-help, business, 
health to history books, Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers list, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. So I'm reading Blinkist right now. Again, I read it on my commute almost every single day. Um, or I listen to it in the gym. It's just awesome because you can just get the main points across in a book really quickly. Um, it's also really great if you read a book and if you want to get the main points because you forget like most of the information. Like you only retain about 80%, not 80%. You only retain about 15% of a book after you read it. It's impossible to retain the entire thing. It's a great refresher. I highly recommend it. The books that I recommend anyone to listen to that are on Blinkist right now are How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, it's a great business book, especially if you just graduated from college. It's awesome to just get you get you uh, in a good mode to work with people on a regular basis. And then um, Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. It's just this awesome book that just takes uh, highly improbable events and it explains how people respond to them. Um, Nassim Nicholas Tlaib is, is honestly one of the best and best writers and most underrated intellectuals um, in this generation. With Blinkist, you can get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all those books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash bro to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash bro to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash bro. Thank you, Blankist, for sponsoring the show. All right. So there's a couple things that we're going to be speaking about today um, besides the, you know, the horrific, tragic terrorist attacks that took place in Florida. Uh, but we wanted to talk about the troop surges in the Middle East, what they mean, some of the military technology behind it that's going to be used and that kind of needs to be understood to, to understand the entire context of everything that's going on. And then before we started recording, this bombshell was just released and we really have no choice but to talk about it just because it's uh, it was kind of shocking that this whole thing was released in the first place by the Washington Post. Now, if you guys haven't heard the Washington Post, what they recently did is that they revealed that U.S. officials, they were... They were fibbing a lot. They were fibbing a lot about the war in Afghanistan. No. Does that surprise you? No, that can't be right. I mean, they were totally truthful about the Iraq war. Why would they? I know. Why would they lie? Why would they lie about this? You mean they lied about a lot of this stuff? So the Washington Post, they published a bunch of government documents, and basically it covers you know, the entire 18 year history of the war. And it, they published their, they published a bunch of interviews and testaments from government officials and generals and military personnel who were being interviewed uh, confidentially. Um, they were anonymous, a lot of them, but they were giving their real thoughts about the war in Afghanistan. And basically they were all like, this war is really, really dumb and we shouldn't be here and we're not solving a damn thing. We are very ill prepared to take this on. 
Does that surprise you? Not in the slightest. What the biggest surprise for me with this whole document was that the Washington Post actually was working on this story and published it. But here's why is that surprising? It's surprising. It's surprising because it's a huge indictment on a lot of things regarding U.S. foreign policy. And the Washington Post, they haven't really put something out like this since the Pentagon Papers. And this is what this document's being compared to. The Pentagon Papers about Vietnam. Right, right. So mm-hmm. it's it was surprising that the Washington Post was working on this story, and, and they deserve credit on it. However, this is not a shocker. Like, <laughs> does this... Anyone could tell you, any person who's been following the war in Afghanistan, even slightly, can tell you that everything is a complete mess. That it is almost it's hopeless and out of control and unsolvable you all you have to do is just look at the timeline of how long we've been there in the first place we've been there for 18 years mm-hmm. i mean we've we've had people on the show that tell, tells us exactly that you know yeah danny Sherson served mm-hmm. in afghanistan and right. i mean he's obviously a critic of critic of it who's been on the show mm-hmm. and you know something that he said to, said to me the first time i spoke to him was that it you know you you can count on your children probably serving in Afghanistan. I mean, technically they could because we've gone on for eighteen years. You know, if you were eighteen when you signed up, you know, to to join the war, and you know, got someone pregnant before you left. Uh, by the time now, they could enlist and also serve in the same war. Well, that's nuts. We we went to war in Afghanistan when we when we were both young when we were mm-hmm. when we were. Not even teenagers yet. No, probably 12. I don't know, some 13 maybe. 11, Younger, 12? Yeah. I can't count, so. 18 I, think years I was ago. 11. <laughs> so we were young when this when this started, and now you have this, you have cases where people, their kids, people who were not born for 9 11 are serving in Afghanistan. Right. So you're like, why the fuck are they there? Why? Why? There must be some good reason for them to be there. Like they must, democracy might just, democracy should be uh, coming any minute now. <laughs> Can you just imagine somebody on the, on the, with a watch? Any minute now, this is going to be a democracy. Any minute. Any minute. Freedom. Just give it freedom. Freedom's going to come. There it is. Oh, that, that, freedom, freedom, freedom. Oh, yeah. all right. Well, any minute now. Well, that's, freedom, freedom. Is that a point? No. That's almost as much as a joke as, well, I think it's more of a joke, but as uh, the notion that Iran is six months away from a bomb. It's pretty much like an 18-year version of that, you know? Afghanistan is about to become a free liberal democracy, and women are, strip clubs are going to be opening there soon. There's going to be a Toys R Us on every single corner. Um, Starbucks everywhere. Starbucks everywhere. Toys R Us doesn't exist anymore, dude. Dunk, Dunkin' Donuts. There's a new Toys R Us. Get out. No, there isn't. I thought they Yeah, shuttered. they reopened they, stores. They, they shuttered. They, they they closed down their existing stores, but they're opening up new stores. Okay. I got to look I swear that. to God, there was a there was an article in Business Insider that came out, or it was the Financial Times that that wrote about the how Toys R Us is coming back. It's not going to be the same Toys R Us where it's going to be like this huge kind of Walmart of, of toys, but it's going to be like, you know have some of the main items that are probably cost effective to sell retail. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
like fucking Legos that cost $90 for a box the size of like a cell phone box. You ever see the price of Legos? Yeah, dude, it's crazy. You know what else is crazy? They're video games at Toys R Us because they were like never discounted and they couldn't keep up with like the demand and shit. So like you'd get a game at Toys R Us for like 60 bucks and you know meanwhile Target's got a Black Friday sale for it for super cheap and then they would keep those old ass video games on and never never drop the prices and they just never could sell them that was like a big money suck for them when they when they went into video games but you gotta get t- that trade-in system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the trade-in system because now it's stupid to buy games at retail price especially if they're a year old because people trade that stuff in anyway so you can get a dollar now games are what 60 bucks or something a They've new been one 60 bucks for like the last 30 years dude jesus yeah they're that expensive yeah when i was younger they used to be 49.99 <laughs> what happened to that nah, but dude, now you can like download games game. and stuff there's oh, like yeah, other free there's now. yeah it's it's fucking horse shit but legos one more story before we dive into this uh, this article. So one time in college, me and my friend were uh, were like, I shouldn't say that the I'm not I'm not gonna say the state that we were in, but we were like, yo, let's go get Legos, mm-hmm. um, and we ended up going to a Toys R Us. We're like, let's go find some Legos. We get there and they're like, we were expecting them to be like ten bucks, twenty bucks. It was like $180 for like the smallest pack of Legos. We were like, what the fuck is this? Gotta um, get those Star Wars Legos, man. Yeah, right. All right. So let's pull up this Washington Post article. So this article from the Post was written by Craig Whitlock. Um, he's a writer for the Washington Post. And I, I have to say, I mean, the guy did a great job. But um, I have the article up right here, and I'm going to go over some of the key points and some of the, some of the key quotes that he that he uh, lists in this article as well. So, a confidential trove of government documents obtained by the Washington Post reveals that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. The documents were generated generated by a federal project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a different role and a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of the vast majority of those interviewed for the project and concealed nearly all of their remarks. The Post won the release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act after a three-year legal battle. So they had to sue for these documents to get them in the first place, which is... Thank you, FOA. Yeah. And it takes a while to sue for that for, for confidential documents. Um, in, the, in the interviews... More than 400 insiders offered unrestrained criticism of what went wrong in Afghanistan and how the U.S. became mired in nearly two decades of warfare. With a bluntness rarely expressed in public, the interviews lay bare pent-up complaints, frustrations, and confessions, along with a second-guessing and backbiting. Here's a quote. So, we were devoid 
a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. Crazy. Douglas Lute, a three-star army general who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers in 2015. He added, what are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. That's if nuts. the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost. Who will say this was in vain? So now, I mean, it's right. So when you think about this, you know, when you think about not having the foggiest idea of what was going on in Afghanistan, because mm-hmm. nobody on this, I would say maybe point oh oh, the only people who knew anything about Afghanistan prior to the war in Afghanistan were, were, were probably like college professors or scholars. Mm. And that subject has probably increased in, in, in interest since, since a lot of these endeavors in the greater Middle East started. Now, there is a lot of fundamental understandings about Afghanistan. The first being is that people think that Afghanistan is part of the Middle East. It's not part of the Middle East. It's more of a Soviet bloc type country. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a Soviet bloc, but there's definitely those influences. But it's in Central Asia. It's not part of the Middle East. It's lumped in there because we went to war there at the same time. And the people are Muslim, so it's easy to make that mistake. I mean, when I was younger, I always thought Afghanistan was part of the Middle East. But it ain't. And the other thing is that Afghanistan is a country that has, first of all, it's been it's been at war since 1979. If you are above the age of 40 at this point, you don't know any or below. If you're younger than 40 years old, which is the majority of the population, you do not know anything besides war. That's nuts to think about, man. It is nuts to think about for any of us. There is not a single time. There is no peacetime whatsoever in Afghanistan. And between 1979 to now, at least we're talking about at least a million people were killed. In Afghanistan, at least mm-hmm. like that is being conservative to the max. Right. And the reason why is because. So let me pull this back with Afghanistan. It is. I think to understand a country, to understand a society, you have to jump into the terrain. You have to look into the terrain of it. And I think that really tells the story of what a, what type of country a like what type of society is formed i think it really stems from what's what's the geography or the topography and afghanistan is it looks like colorado right it's rugged it's rugged yeah it looks like colorado it's just mountains everywhere uh it's hard to navigate and there is because of that it's very hard to create a strong central state Therefore, large there's a large role for outsiders. When you have a tribal society, there's a very large role for outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, United meaning we stand foreign, divided, we foreigners, yeah, meaning foreigners. Mm-hmm. When there's not a when there's when that when you have a landlocked country with without pretty much a government, um, and basically they're a, a tribal society, and it's divided by location and, and ethnicity. And divisions like this, they create intense local loyalties. You can see throughout history when there's a lot of ethnic divisions or a lot of divisions based off just your own isolation, there's going to be a lot of loyalty to strongmen. And that's basically what you're looking at within Afghanistan. And 
when a state collapses, like the, the, the main cycle of Afghanistan, I think is the easiest way to explain everything is that, all right, the state collapses and then the, the, the conflict leads to temptations from outsiders to, to intervene or even to invade. And you see that with going back to the Soviets, the Soviets intervened in Afghanistan because they wanted a pro-communist or a pro-Soviet Union government in there. And when there was when there was a coup or when there was a threat of him, that government collapsing, that's when they went into Afghanistan. But what happens is that when foreign powers go into Afghanistan, they find the country pretty un, like inhospitable. And they also find it ungovernable. So they end up withdrawing. And when they withdraw, internal conflict escalates. And when internal conflict escalates, there's a lot of violence because of how divided the country is between ethnicities and tribal loyalties. Afghan groups, they try to establish a semblance of order. And usually those semblance, those like AKA the Taliban, and that's how they were created to, to create order from the civil war between three different, three different sects between the Tajiks, the Uzbeks and the Pashtuns, mm-hmm. who were the main three players after the Soviet invasion. That's how they formed up. And when these new forces come in, they typically come in with an iron fist and they offend pretty much everyone who's outside of that bubble, which rightfully so, because the Taliban are pretty damn brutal. They're warriors, they're warlords. And they, you know, you look at them, how they do some things, you know, they'll go into a town and you know, they'll hang everyone like they're known for hanging people. And, you know, they oppress women and all that stuff that people like to act, you know, shed crocodile tears over. But that government, you know, that new power will offend outside powers and they'll offend them so much that it will cause that power to intervene, thus starting the cycle all over again. That's Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Just collapsed government and then the collapsed government leads to strongmen and then just the cycle continues and continues and continues and continues. When you're dealing when when the United States or pretty much any country, it's not that the U.S. If you go, I mean, the, the British fought three wars within Afghanistan. They all failed. There's three Anglo-Afghan wars. Each one they lost. Soviets lost the war. The Afghanistan's called the graveyard of empires for a damn reason. Mm-hmm. I wish people told George Bush. I mean, people probably did tell George Bush that, but I wish people told George Bush that, or he took it to heart before he went inside there. But. There's no context or, or foreign policy officials are utterly without context when it comes to countries that have either multiple ethnicities or sectarian tension between them. They just don't know what to do. They think that they don't understand that there's time bombs a lot. A lot of the times there's these time bombs that, that can go off pretty easily when you intervene. And that's kind of like the big misunderstanding that we that many people have in the west about countries like afghanistan and that that misunderstanding i think is what resulted in what we have today i mean this guy continues on that says that since 2001 775 u.s troops have been deployed to afghanistan multiple multiple have been repeatedly and of those like 2300 people died and upwards of 20,000 people were wounded in action so you know this crazy quagmire that's going on in there is just costing us so much in both 
uh, blood, like literally people are dying, but also money. You know, um, we've allocated a trillion dollars for this effort, you know, and uh, he quotes uh, Jeffrey Eggers, um, who is a retired Navy SEAL, you know, and saying, what did we get for this one trillion dollar effort? Like, what was it worth? And he continues on and says that after the killing of Osama bin Laden, I said that Osama was probably laughing in his watery grave considering how much we've spent on Afghanistan. And it's kind of true, you know, like the Osama bin Laden clearly had a bent out for, you know, uh, uh, the United States of America for the reasons that we described before and probably many more that we'll never know. Uh, and he pulled us into this ridiculous engagement, which, you know, mission accomplished, I guess. No, you're exactly right. That's a great point. I think what I, I, what Osama bin Laden was trying to do was pull us into the Middle East, pull these, pull us into the greater Middle East, into these 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 pretty much unwinnable wars where we're going to waste human lives and spend trillions of dollars on them. Because they can't hurt us here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they can, there's going to be terrorist attacks, but they can't, they can't invade much, right? the United States. And they the, can pull us in and hurt us from there. In the words of uh, the great general uh, or great Admiral Akbar, that's a trap. Sorry, Star Wars reference. People get it. You don't have to say it. It's a trap. It's a trap. But he laid a trap. That's what it was. You know, like he knows he can't come over here and like come in like you know fucking why do you trucks blaring and shit like he can't invade the united states he can't like topple the u.s government that way but he can you know set this ridiculous trap where you know i'm gonna go hide out in some mountains in afghanistan and then he's gonna have to the u.s is gonna have to come find me right um and it's gonna cost them a trillion dollars and thousands of lives why don't you think the empire ever invaded tatooine because it's did, did, did terrible. They have, yeah. Did they have administrative control? Did they ever conquer Tatooine? They didn't. It was on the outer rim. No. And, and there's yeah. like, it's, it, was it, it wasn't rim. worth it. It wasn't worth it. Uh, in the words of Anakin Skywalker, it's like, you know, sand and, co- I hate sand. It's coarse and rough or whatever he fucking says. I don't know. He was a whiny bitch. Isn't that mocked? That Isn't that mo- line completely mocked with all the Star Wars fans? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's saying, true. I mean, he had a point, right? Like, why the fuck would the Empire want to go over there if, you know. I don't want to get all sandy and shit. But any in, in any case. Like, all right. Well, let me just, I just want to take this second part. So several of those interviewed, so I'm quoting from the, from the Post article, several mm-hmm. of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was a common at military headquarters on Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear that the U.S. was winning the war when that was not the case. Oh. And there's a quote. So every data, every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Bob Crowley, an army colonel who served as a senior counterinsurgency advisor to U.S. military commanders in 2013 and 2014, told government interviewers. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right. And we became a self-licking Ice cream cone. It's kind of a weird <laughs> reference. <laughs> I've never heard that in my life. Ice cream cone. A self-licking ice cream cone. And, I mean, that's what happens. So, when you... Because my, my perception on, on this is that when you have a job to do, military commanders, 
it's like being a coach. It's like being a head coach of a football team. So let's just say if you're a head coach and you go and you start um, working with a team that has a losing record, and the reason you were hired was to make that team have a winning record, and let's say you lose a couple of games, you're going to do whatever possible to spin that narrative so it makes it seem that you're making progress with the team. Oh, so we did be, uh, 20% more rushing yards, and uh, our pass completion is up 57%, and, uh, you know, whatever. Same shit. You get the idea. Exactly. They're going to be like, well, you know, it's uh, some tough games, but we have a lot of progression with, you know, with, with the quarterback. He's being he's, he's getting through his progressions, like, you know, and he's, he has more pocket awareness and all this stuff, and the team's awareness. coming together. That's the most... <laughs> the the most, team's like, coming together in a thing. locker room. We're yeah. stronger than ever. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's tough to lose. It's, you know, you, you have the incentive to preserve your job really and that's what they're doing they're preserving their jobs and they're making it seem like they have progress because that's what their job is to make it seem like they have progress in these godforsaken areas of the world i mean that's like the selfish but but kind of um benign thing to say i mean the the more the more uh uh, uh you know kind of evil thing to say is that they knew that this shit was wrong and they were intentionally misleading people so John Sopko, the head of the federal agency that conducted the interviews, acknowledged to the Post that the documents show the American people have constantly been lied to. And there it is. <laughs> the interviews are the byproduct of a project led by Sopko's agency, the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, known as SIDGAR. The agency was created by Congress in 2008 to investigate waste and fraud in the war zone. In 2014, a Sopko direction SIGAR... Cigar departed from its usual mission of performing audits and launched a side venture titled Lessons Learned. The 11 million project was meant to diagnose policy failures in Afghanistan so the United States would not repeat the mistakes the next time it invaded a country or try to rebuild a shattered one. Hmm. You know, the mistake is trying to build a sh- rebuild a shattered country in the first place. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. It's like everyone uh, tries to use country. the example. That, that that one comes first. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, everyone tries to use the example of Japan and Europe post-World War II. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, well, you know, intervention worked with Japan. We went in there Germany. and they became the most, yeah, Germany and, and Japan, they became economic powerhouses. The thing that's different about them is that, first of all, we murdered millions of people. Millions right. of people in those wars. Hundreds Millions. of thousands in a single, like, instant. Between the firebombings of um, um, Dresden, Dresden, Dresden. Um, the firebombings, the firebombings of Tokyo, obviously the two nuclear bombs or Hiroshima two atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, those are just very, those are just some of the bombings that were undertaken. There are millions of people who were murdered. Now, why were these countries able to economically succeed later on? It's because the countries in in root they did have the culture stability to come back and rise again. Like the educational, these societies were literate. You know, Germany and Japan were both literate societies. They stressed education. They had a chance, 
Afghanistan, it's the most illiterate place on earth. Or I'm, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure Afghanistan is the most illiterate place on earth. Um, you can fact check me on that, but I don't think there is one that's more impoverished. So drawing partly on the interviews, interviews, as well as other government records and statistics, Cigar has published seven lessons learned reports Lessons learned reports since 2016 that highlight problems in Afghanistan and recommend changes to stabilize the country. But the reports written in dense bureaucratic prose and focus on an alphabet soup of government initiatives left out the hardest and most frank criticisms from the interviews. We found that the stable is a quote. We found the stabilization strategy and the program used to achieve it were not properly tailored to the Afghan context. And successes in stabilizing Afghans districts rarely lasted longer than the physical presence of coalition troops and civilians, read the introduction to one report released in May 2018. The reports also omitted the names of more than 90% of the people who were interviewed for the project. While a few officials agreed to speak on the record to Sigar, the agency said it promised anonymity to everyone else it interviewed to avoid controversy or political on over politically sensitive matters under the freedom of information act the post began seeking lessons learned interview records in august 2016 cigar refused arguing that the documents were privileged were privileged and the public had no right to see them that's a fucking a whole thing to say yeah Yeah, you have the public has no right to see what we've been spending a trillion dollars on over the past 18 years no none of your concern none of this is uh national security stuff you wouldn't even be interested in it you don't care about pay no attention to the man behind the curtain don't pay no attention nothing to see here carry on your day (laughs) the post had to sue cigar in federal court twice to compel to release the documents the agency eventually disclosed more than 2,000 pages of unpublished notes and transcripts from 428 of the interviews, as well as several audio recordings. The documents identify 62 of the people who were interviewed, but Cigar blacked out the names of 366 others. In legal briefs, the agency con- contended that those individuals should be seen as whistleblowers and informants who might face humiliation, harassment, retaliation, or physical harm if their names become public. Oh, shut the fuck up. They're not going to be seen as whistleblowers or informants or humiliation. We're talking about the war in Afghanistan right now. It's widely unpopular. This is not like they're cooking up, like... They're not talking about things that are more politically taboo. This article was syndicated on, or at least wrote about, or syndicated, or mentioned on Fox... This is something that's universal. Yeah, I mean, but, but more more to the more to their point, though, not not to back cigar up too much, but I mean, that would be a reason not to um, to keep certain people's names off that list because they would be humiliated for sure. But it's possible that they'd be retaliated against um, or like their careers hurt or maybe even physical harm because a lot of the shit that's in here is pretty damning. You know, um, the fact that you know this could have gone on for as long as it did, cost us as much as it did. You know, claimed as many lives as it did, both uh, on the Afghanistani side, but certainly on on the United States side here. You know, that's that's I think good reason not to want to include all of them. But uh, even even though they didn't include all the names, 
uh, several were named, uh, and uh, it looks like you know the post were able to independently verify like 33 additional names, um, people including like former ambassadors, generals, and White House officials. And I think you know the the amount of people that we know were in these documents that were saying these things out loud and quite bluntly really just hammers it down. You know, it 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 sh- it shows its relevance. It shows you know how crazy this shit is and it, it it also verifies its its you know integrity right this is this is real shit this isn't like you know hearsay you know this is real testimony so yeah and you guys should definitely read this because we're just we're, we're kind of cherry picking different things out of this but you right. should definitely there's, read, there's read this no post possible article. way that we could read all of it on, on yeah <laughs> on the air here it would take hours um but here's an interesting thing so mm-hmm. here's a quote from james dobbins a former senior u.s diplomat who served as a special envoy to Af- afghanistan under bush and obama he said we don't invade poor countries to make them rich we don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic we invade violent countries to make them peaceful and we clearly failed in Afghanistan. <laughs> I, it's sometimes you need to find find the humor. Yeah, um, but I think that's a really good segue to like what's going on, you know, right now, right? So this comes out today, and we find out that you know, among many other things, you know, this war was not a great idea, and it didn't work, and we shouldn't be doing this. Nevertheless, if you look at some slightly older news, uh, we see, um, you know, some indications that we're gearing up to not wind down this war, but actually increase this war, right? So we're, we're actually fixing, I think Trump's fixing to put in, you know, th- tens of thousands of more troops into Afghanistan, uh, and that's where we are right now. <laughs> so, like, colored by this new context that we have, you know, I mean, we all suspected that this is all bullshit, and, you know, we've never been you know spoken very highly about that that war on this show we now have that evidence we got the documents right here you know two thousand pages worth uh and nevertheless we're we're gonna put more in so what do you think about that henry yeah let's um so everyone i'm gonna post the the uh the washington post article inside the footnotes of the show so you can read it and um, I recommend reading the entire thing. It's very interesting. But before we get into what's going on now and certain segue out, um, got to thank our, our friends at Blue Chew. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever that opportunity arises. If you could benefit from more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is a fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians, so you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, there's no more awkwardness. Right now, we got a special deal for our listeners. Visit, visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code BRO. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's Blue, B-L-U-E, Chew.com, promo code BRO to try it free. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. 
and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks, Blue Chew. Thank you, Blue Chew. We love you too. Um, yeah, so let's segue into that, right? Um, because this article will take two hours to dissect. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to make a quick correction. I, I did say that um, Trump was planning on on sending more people to specifically Afghanistan. I think that's that's a um, that's uh, that was misspoken. He, he intends to send troops to the Middle East and Afghanistan, right? So like the broader conflict zone, um, and so that would obviously include places like Afghanistan. But I think the majority of this is is focusing around being a stalwart against. Um, <clears throat> Iran and 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 the bum, you know, but the bum, but it's huge. I mean, we're we're and to protect. I think a big thing is that is the protect Saudi oil assets. (laughs) No, really, I think that's that's kind of what it is. Because from uh, I think you've been kind of following the story a little bit more than I, closer than I have. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that. That troop surge is intended to go to Saudi Arabia with the main goal of protecting Saudi oil refineries and things like that. Yeah, I think it's been pretty – we've been pretty light on details on exactly what – you know, where they're going to be sending these people. But I think based on a lot of different things that he's been saying in the past, you know, the expectation is that he'd be sending a lot more to uh, Saudi Arabia, which we have sent a bunch of, you know, additional troops to the Saudi Arabia region, you know, uh, since, you know, the ongoing war. Uh, in Syria and like stuff with ISIS and things like that. So that's been ramping up steadily. So we can imagine that, uh, you know, a a good amount of these would would be going there. But the point is that we'd be sending more people into wars. uh, And now we have this conclusive, explosive document that outlines how, you know, this whole war idea, this this war game that we're playing is just a lose, like we're losing. You know, we're not doing very well. And we're not gaining anything. And we're not, you know, we're not benefiting other people in any meaningful way you know um except for maybe saudi arabia um so there's that so it looks like um we're planning on sending you know dozens of ships uh military hardware and something like fourteen thousand additional troops um and that could mean basically doubling the u.s military presence you know in you know in the region right now um and this is all obviously counter to the ideas that, you know, uh, you know, Trump and the administration wants to end these senseless wars, you know. And um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it, man. What do you what do you think? So it's really hard to dissect Donald Trump's uh, decisions because <laughs> yeah. he changes them or he at least he changes his mind all the time. And it doesn't really seem like he has a clear foreign policy principle. He just thinks something and then he says it. He he thinks and then he says and then I think he kind kind of goes for his instincts and then he gets pushed back and then he backs down. I think that's a cycle that we see from Donald Trump yeah. when it comes to things like because he said that he wanted to remove. I mean before. He uh, before the election, before when he was campaigning, right. he was saying how he agreed with Ron Paul, <laughs> yeah. how yeah. how he agreed with Ron Paul, and how this was a big how, the war in Afghanistan was a big waste of money. Yeah, probably got some libertarian brownie points for it too. He did. He, he did get some some libertarian brownie points. A lot of people who are anti-war, they saw Trump as a more viable option than Hillary Clinton, which I still think there's a lot of truth to that. However, um, he. It's really hard to judge him 
because I think we're going to have to look at his foreign policy record like a couple years down the down the line. Yeah, unfortunately with him, it's like you have to wait and see. Yeah, <laughs> and but, that's funny because he says that's like his favorite line. It's like we'll see. <laughs> I know we'll we'll see. I don't think he wants to get engaged into another military conflict. However, he's trying to play he's walking on the tightrope of what he can do foreign policy wise. And I think the exact same thing happened to Barack Obama, to yeah. be completely honest. Because Barack <laughs> Obama campaigned on getting out of wars yeah, in the Middle East the and dis, dis, time, dis, yeah. disengaging in the Middle East. However you want to phrase it. And he got wrapped up in pretty much a lot of the things with Trump, but even more to a greater degree. I right. mean, tr- uh, Barack Obama sent more troops into the Middle East. He he started war fronts within Syria uh, and and Libya. He increased troops in Afghanistan. Started war fronts in Somalia. I mean, I mean, there's always been a war front in Somalia, but he expanded war right. when he said he wasn't. Now, I mean, he's also had Bar- five more years on Trump. <laughs> Barack <But>. Obama. <laughs> Barack Obama. I don't think. I think that Barack Obama, Obama. I don't. I'm not sure how clear of an understanding he had on these on these things that were going on in the Middle East. I kind of think he has a better. He had a better understanding as when, at least when he came into office and Donald Trump of what was going at least with some of the sectarian divides or some of the divides and some of the time bombs that were placed in there. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think he was totally educated. There are some things that he said that didn't really make any sense about how the Shiites and Sunnis have been fighting for centuries and centuries, and it's a longstanding war and (laughs) all this stuff. Like, there are some clear blind spots with him, and I think that's where he was taken advantage of. Probably, yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, it's tough. Most people don't know about this stuff. and. And well, I mean, if you're going to be the president, you you're running a campaign. Should know this shit. <laughs> you, you should. You should know this. But when you're running a campaign for presidency, like you know, the, the the number one concern for most voters is not foreign escapades. As long as there's not like a really big escalation and there's not a, a heavy amount of casualties and you're not seeing it in your pocket, most people aren't really that concerned about this stuff. Now, Barack Obama was probably a lot more about getting his domestic and, and like most presidents they're more concerned about getting their domestic pushing their domestic policy forward so i mean you're gonna have to look at donald trump's i think trump sees that if there was another breakout in some type of war that it would it would probably get out of control and he understands that but mm-hmm. he's also balancing a lot of things so i you know there's a big there's a clear influence on the israel lobby with Donald Trump and and his connections to the far right wing Likud party, which is crazy. Uh, it's crazy how much he goes to bat for Netanyahu, giving him election favors. You know, with I mean, it's everything crazy from how much Dr- he goes to bat for other countries in general, right? Yeah, so, so, and with like, Saudi Arabia as well, right? Um, Some I mean, Saudi Arabia, Russia. I don't know. <laughs> the, the, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say Russia really because he put sanctions on Russia, Ooh. and I, I would. I definitely <laughs> would say the main, the two big influences on Donald Trump as far as other foreign powers are, are Saudi Arabia and Israel. And Saudi Arabia and Israel, they have the same interest foreign policy wise. That's mm-hmm. why they're allies. You know, mm-hmm. I think Saudi Arabia wanted to calls uh or at least they wanted to call israel a brother nature a brother a brother nature brother 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 nature is a like a a funny animal youtube personality a he wanted to call them a brother they wanted to call them a brother nation excuse me because they have they have the same agenda for policy wise because they both (laughs) they both hate iran so Mm -hmm. it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing right um 
and he kind of walks the line and you know obviously there's oil interest and 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 keeping oil demand oil supplies uh up and controlling the tap with because saudi arabia is the largest export of oil in the world so they they want that control over it but yeah I and mean, he's clearly influenced by also the arms deals with saudi arabia as well um i think he he thinks so pragmatically and he thinks so transactional that he just sees two sects or divided middle eastern country as a good opportunity to make a buck like you know He's like, you got these Muslims pissed off at these Muslims. Why are we going to sell them weapons? It's a no-brainer. Like, I think that's kind of his mentality. Yeah. It's like, you got you got these countries want to fight this? Look, why wouldn't we sell the weapons? Um, as long as there's not dead GIs, um, I think he's, I think he's fine doing. Yeah, I think, I think your your take on transactional nature of of like his thought process is pro- probably pretty spot on. I th- I don't think he sees the forest through the trees here. I think he deals in every. <clears throat> You know everything as like a you know uh, one-off deal, right? So, for example, you know uh, I want to work with Saudi Arabia because you know uh, they are a friendly ally in the nation, and we can sell them billions of dollars, and like they've got all this oil stuff, and we want to make sure that we have tight relationships with them, you know. And then shit like you know fucking uh, they go to war in Yemen <laughs> uh, and they commit atrocities there, and he's like, ah, but you know it's not so bad. And then like Khashoggi happens, he's like, oh well, you know whatever. And then it's like, uh, you know, I don't recently, know. There's something about the prince. I be- I trust him. <laughs> yeah, you know. And then, I don't know. I trust him. You know, like same same thing with like the relationships with um, you know uh, the Israeli lobby. You know, so. I think he's just dealing like he's making these one off deals and then trying to stick to those one off deals, even if they run counter to like the the broader context, you know, and like what's best for, you know, the United States. I, I think that's where he gets really tripped up because he's trying to like do these one off deals and those are important to him instead of like looking at it holistically and saying, OK, does this all make sense together? Right. Um, but that's my take on it. Um, well, the reason why he pulled out of a lot of the mess that he's in with Saudi Arabia, with Iran, with the big the, the, the increased tensions is f- for pulling out of the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. And let's just be frank. He pulled out of the Iran deal because of influence from Saudi Arabia and Israel. Right. That was the reason why he pulled out. Um, so it's because of that. I don't know. You could say a lack of nuance and he just, or, or either that is a combination of this, the influence. And then also him just a, a political win with Republicans for shitting on a Obama policy. Right. Right. It's the good talking point politically. The, the Iran deal. We gave him back money. No, not even back. We gave them money. It's not every, they don't even say back money. They say, we gave them money. We gave them billions of dollars. Why, why, we would, you, why would you do that? That's, you know, we, we got it fair and square. It's our money. My bank, my money. But, anyway. all right. Let's go into the, the deeper into the troop surge. Yep. So, you know, but I think, um, basically, I think this is like a good segue to just talk about, you know, foreign engagements in general and like kind of where are, 
you know, where we're at in warfare, you know, um, I think that uh, what's what's really important is, you know, we're, we're talking about this troop surge, you know, like, how do we get it done? And like the landscape of warfare has been changing a lot. And I'm actually really excited to talk about something pretty cool that came up as a uh, as a request. Actually, uh, one of our reviewers, uh, Robert Colbert or Robert Colbert, Robert Colbert, Robert Colbert. I don't know. Whatever you call yourself, man. Thanks for the question, uh, the request. Uh, so we asked that we talk a little bit about um, super tankers, like aerial refueling tankers. <laughs> so I think I want to talk a little bit about that because it's been a minute since we've done any military tech. Go on. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. Are you waiting for something? Oh, no, I was just pausing in case you wanted to say something. No, there's a siren in my background. Oh, all right. Cool. So, um, you know, for those of you who don't really know what the hell I'm talking about, aerial refueling is is basically when you take a plane and it's full of gas and you refuel another airplane in the sky with more fuel. So what's pretty cool about this is that, you know, it's it's a pretty insane stunt. I mean, we, we had uh, one conversation, uh, one episode here uh, on uh, supercarriers, so aircraft carriers. Uh, and we'll be talking a lot about aircraft carriers here today, too. But um, like aircraft carriers, this is one of the craziest things that you can do in military, right? Like landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier while it's moving and you have to like go fast to do it. That's like insane to think about. Uh, this is also pretty insane. This is like twenty to 30,000 feet in the air going 350 miles an hour. And you have to like link up two planes, you know. Uh, so it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, but it's not new uh, in particular. It's actually started around 1923, the first time it was done. Um, there certainly have been some accidents um, uh, while they were doing it. And it doesn't always have to be midair. Well, actually, in- so it kind of looks like seahorses having sex. Absolutely. Just like seahorses. Right. Um, but to talk about this um, in, in particular and why it's so important, I think we kind of need to talk about uh, like our fleet of supercarriers or aircraft carriers that we're using right now, because there's some issues that we're that we're coming up against um, in modern warfare uh, that kind of need to be addressed if we're going to be doing you know operations around the globe like we always do. Um, so a couple things about um, U.S. supercarriers. They're definitely the undeniable like heavyweight champions of warfare f- for now. So a couple things about them. Uh, if you want more facts, I would definitely listen to our episode on that. Um, but uh, they're the lar- largest warships ever built. They're four and a half acres, big, a thousand feet long, 20 stories tall, weigh an approximate fuck ton. Um, they're nuclear powered and they can go on basically forever. Uh, the newest ones cost something like $18 billion a pop, so they're not cheap, uh, but they carry like 60 aircraft and above. Uh, they are home to like 5,000 plus seamen. <laughs> seamen. Uh, they're uh, armed to the teeth, so they got shit like, you know, Sea Sparrow missiles, rolling airframe missiles, phalanxes, you know, uh, a bunch of different things. Fucking lasers. Um, that's a that's a thing. <laughs> they have lasers. Um yeah, that's right. Lasers? Yeah, fucking lasers. Uh, I think they're like... I, I Trucks with freaking laser beams on their heads. laser beams on them. Yeah, dude, we ha- we actually have lasers that like shoot missiles out of the sky or like planes, like cut them in half and shit. That's pretty awesome. I've heard about that and I heard that they, they're, they're bullshit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you should watch some videos on it. They're pretty effective. Um, but the, the shitty part about it is that like, you know, they're massive systems and sometimes they like, 
get I heard they're super expensive. They're expensive. They also get like technically hard to operate, right? So it's not like a gun you can take it apart and be like, all right, new pieces or whatever. This is a fucking laser, right? It's a bit more, bit more to it than that. Um, also, the last interesting point about an aircraft carrier is that it rolls deep, right? It's not just an aircraft carrier. It has, you know, a, a carrier group, like its crew, its little gang that rolls around with it. Uh, and that can include at least one cruiser, a destroyer squadron of at least two destroyers or frigates, um, an air carrier wing with, you know, 60, 70 aircraft on it. And on occasion, they also have like submarines, uh, some additional like logistics and supply ships, you know, so these things roll deep. um, And whenever we park one outside of anywhere, uh, including the Middle East, which we have many um, people get shook. Right. It used to be in the past that, you know, when China was acting foolish, uh, we would just send an aircraft carrier over there like a carrier strike group. And then they they stop fucking around. Um, But we're having some developments. Right. And that's not going to work anymore. You know, moving forward, you've got these new anti-ship weapons that are basically threatening the carrier military hegemony. Um, so, you know, weapons are popping up right now uh, all over the place, you know, especially in, in Russia and in China that have ranges of like 500 miles or, or greater. Um, what does this mean, Danny? Stop speaking nerd. I get it. So an aircraft carrier, like the reason why they're so important is because we can put a bunch of airplanes on top of it. We can float over, you know, to the you know, like international waters out, just right outside of a country. And then we can fly a bunch of sorties or like, you know, air missions and bomb the shit out of them. Right. Like that's what we use. We also use it for like close air support for troops on the ground. We also do it for like, you know, spying, you know, as, as I'm sure you're familiar, you know, recently Iran shot down a, uh, one of our drones, right? So like all of that stuff is like launched primarily off of, um, you know, these carriers and, and that's why they're so important because they're like a floating fortress basically. Um, but with these new missiles that can potentially kill, um, a, a, uh, uh, aircraft carrier, it's, it's just not viable really to stay close. So you know, here's the, the dilemma that, that, that we get into. So current popular like carrier based jets, things like the F.A. Uh, 18 Super Hornet or like the more popular F-35 Lightning C, um, you know, they, they operate with a with like a combat radius of 500 to 700 miles. Right. Um, and when you account for the range of the anti ship missiles, it, it either doesn't leave enough room for a return flight, meaning they can only fly a one way trip. Or you have to park the carrier outside of the missile zone, um, uh, or I should say inside of the missile zone, right? So in directly threatened by the missiles. Uh, and that obviously is probably not a good idea because it it's obviously threatens the safety of the carrier, but also thousands of people that are on board, right? Cool thing about aircraft carriers is that you can put a bunch of shit on them. Bad thing about aircraft carriers is that it's a big-ass easy target, right? So... You know, what do you do about this, right? Yeah, I mean, the the ideal situation is that you can just park it further offshore away from all the missiles and, you know, just somehow figure out a way to fly the jets farther, right? And and that's where air refueling comes in, right? Uh, unfortunately, um, to make matters really bad, the Navy retired uh, two of their uh, um, refueling tankers, right? The KA-6 and the S-3 Viking tanker. Uh, and those were used to refuel the planes, you know, during their, during their missions. Right. So interesting point about the S3 Viking, it's a four crew, uh, twin engine turbojet van. Um, it was originally intended for anti-sub action, but then, um, they kind of changed up 
and made it into a uh, like an aerial refueler. Um, and it's subsonic. That means that it it flies slower than the speed of sound. Um, but that's a that's a good thing for air refuelers because that means it can fly farther. Um, and uh, it can fly for a really fucking long time. And it's capable of refueling multiple planes at the same time. Um, and also, fun fact, uh, because of the sound that it makes, it, it was nicknamed the War Hoover after the vacuum cleaner brand, uh, which is pretty funny. Um, but don't want to get off topic here. So b- basically, they the Navy said, all right, we're not using these anymore. Um, so what they're currently doing to supplant their refueling in the air needs is they're modifying Super Hornets you know, with refueling pods. So what a refueling pod is, it basically take a regular jet, you know, one that you would use to like go in a dogfight or like bomb something, and they put these giant things underneath the wings, and they're just basically fuel tanks, um, and they use uh, the jet as a flying, um, you know, refueling station. So problem solved, right? Um, not exactly. So it's actually a problem. That in and of itself is a problem for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is that these are fighter jets, right? That they're using something like 30% of these jets are dedicated to like literally just refueling other jets, which is bad because that reduces our combat readiness, right? That means we have 30% less jets to go out and fight, you know? The second reason is that it's just a shitty platform for refueling. It's a small airplane that's not built for refueling, which means that it can carry less fuel and it was built to like go fast and like dogfight and stuff like that. So it burns up a shit ton of fuel just to do its job. Um, and I guess kind of the last thing is that Super Hornets um, are used as recovery tankers rather than mission tankers. I'm going to explain what that means because this is important. So what it means is that, you know, we fly a jet out, right? Let's say we send out some Super Hornets and some F-35s to go bomb the shit out of, you know, anywhere. On the way back, what happens is a reach recovery tanker will fly out and meet it halfway on the way back rather than flying with it and refueling it mid mission and then flying back with it. And so th- this causes a problem because, you know, what happens is that it causes a little bit of air traffic on the landing because uh, all the jets, literally all of them have to do all the refueling at the same time instead of, you know, on the way there, they refuel and then they peel off and come back and then there's a little bit more room. But that's, that's a smaller technical problem. So we have this problem, right? So I'm having a problem. <laughs> you remember those episodes? You remember those uh, 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 commercials, Henry? I do. So what is, so what is the main problem so like what what is the navy going to do with anti-ship missiles with more advanced anti-ship missiles because it does sound like a pretty big problem like how does the how does the u.s navy continue to project power with aircraft carriers yeah i mean uh, i I think um i definitely can get to some of the solutions that they're operating on but like to 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 underscore what the problems are in a quick synopsis, I think that you know aircraft carriers are definitely the backbone of our military operations abroad, as you point out. You know, if we want to project air power, we got it. We need carriers, maybe. And then we have these anti-ship missiles that are getting deadlier. They threaten our carriers, which means we have to put them further offshore. Um, you know, in conflicts, especially against major nations, but potentially against smaller ones, uh, because these anti-ship missiles they're easy to build. They're easy to you know transport effectively you know if if russia wants to sell an s400 system or something like that something to that effect or china wants to sell one to some other country they can easily do this and now those carriers aren't very effective anymore 
And jets like the F-35, they, you know, they just don't have enough flight range to do a mission that's like more than 500 miles out and then come back. And we don't have a good solution. right? They're still using those things. What, the F-35s? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a dedicated carrier-based refueling doesn't plane. The, doesn't the the, machi- the 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 piece that connects them to the aircraft carrier not work? Uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. Sometimes. M- some of them. So, most of the time. <laughs> but it's there. It just doesn't work. So uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. We, we don't have a dedicated carrier-based refueling plane right now because we pulled the two that we were using. And the planes that we're using to to do that job right now or shit for that job. So like, as you asked, what do we do about it? So, um, I think, you know, more fuel efficient drones could be a really good option. So in 2013, um, Northrop Grumman, uh, they, uh, had the X 47 B, which was actually the first unmanned aircraft to perform an autonomous, like, uh, takeoff, uh, and landing on a carrier. Uh, then two years later, that same plane, um, performed the first autonomous aerial refueling maneuver. Right. So Cool. Let's just make some drones, right? That sounds like a good idea. Um, it, also, in 2013, uh, the Navy put out this program called U-Class. Um, it was basically like a like a competition uh, to develop a stealthy carrier-based uh, multi-role drone. They were going to call it RAQ-25 Stingray. Uh, they wanted to do a bunch of things: spy on targets, you know, attack deep in enemy airspace, things like that. And four different companies actually in, uh, invested in the con- uh, in that competition, but then you know the Navy, military-industrial complex always changes their minds m- like middle of the game. They did a switcheroo in 2016, and they were like, "No, nah, we don't want you know uh, uh, we don't want a drone for you know this multi-role. We, we want a refueling a refueling drone, right? Um, so rather than replacing manned fighters like the F-35, you know they they just want a refueling drone. Thank God." Um, there's a little bit of concern, I think, though, you know, as as I'm sure you'd imagine, uh, around the growing list of crazy ass requirements needed to make drones uh, that could replace jets. Um, so think of like the Bradley armored fighting vehicle that we talked about a while ago, plus an F-35 and make a baby. And then, you know, you can imagine how, how much of a shit show that would be. So Navy flips the script. They're like, hey, we, we don't want that anymore. We want a drone so that we can do refueling, and we're going to call it the MQ-25. So wait, what are... All right, just go over this. Mm-hmm. What does the Navy want for an air <laughs> tanker? Like, just like go over what the Christmas list is for them. All right, so Christmas list, then, is uh, a regular-sized jet, right? It's got to be small enough to be on a, on a carrier, right? It's got to be able to fuel four to six different jets, it's got to be able to fly up to 600 miles and still refuel. It somehow has to maintain... It has to use the same refueling pods that they're using with the modded Super Hornets because park compatibility, hooray. Or uh, it has to somehow magically carry more fuel internally. Um, it has to be stealthy. Uh, it has to do spying and electronic and maybe even some ground warfare. Uh, and it has to not be expensive as hell, or I guess, you know, they could probably just... What? <laughs> not be expensive as hell? Well, you know, that's their stated intent, but the likelihood Yeah, their is that, stated intent. The likelihood is that they'll probably set up manufacturing everywhere like they did with the F-35, so representatives have to vote That's yes how they do it. with every <laughs> large military project. The, the manufacturing is spread, spread out across the country, so politicians can't vote against it. <laughs> yeah. Because it will cost jobs. I mean, not only jobs in that... In that 
certain manufacturing industry, all the adjacent industries. Yep. So all the buying and selling industries. The logistics that, companies, the truck. The logistics the, companies, yeah. the mm-hmm. trucks companies, the metal cup, the, the steel companies, mm-hmm. the mining mm-hmm. companies, because all the industries are connected with each other. Right. And you have this one industry that's kind of like almost like a master industry to those industries. Mm-hmm. It just, there's, when you have these these huge government projects like this and you take them away, it's going to cause a shift in local economics. Absolutely. You know, I mean, even Bernie Sanders voted for the F-35 program because, yeah, we'll build them in, we'll we'll build them in my state. Yeah, why not? The plane is going to be built anywhere. (laughs) Might as well be me. (laughs) Okay, so, like, I gave you the laundry list of shit that the the Navy wants and, you know, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, like, these specs cause some you know, some skeptics to doubt whether or not this is possible, right? Um, I mean, right now, the modded Super Hornet, it can, you know, the one that they're using currently, the jet that they're using right now to do refueling missions, uh, it can carry like 15,000 pounds of fuel. That's 2,200 gallons. Uh, But it literally burns a ton of fuel just to do it. So that's, you know, that's out the window. Um, Designs for the MQ-25, this thing that they want to build, um, they definitely leave some desire, uh, you know, something to be desired in terms of capacity. Uh, a bunch of experts argue that it's probably not going to be enough to refuel four to six jets um, and, you know, increase the range that those jets can fly meaningfully um, for it to be worth it. Uh, this is definitely true for F-35s because F-35s have a pretty long range. It's like 800 miles as opposed to like 500 miles for the Super Hornet. Um, but they also have way bigger fuel tanks, which means that we need more fuel to refuel them. So, you know, there's some concerns about the capacity there. A couple other concerns are around like part compatibility. You know, like the Navy says they want them to use the same fuel pods, right? But like F-35 was notorious for failing on its pledge to, you know, be super part compatible. So like nobody's buying the idea that like this thing is going to be super, you know, useful in terms of like using all the same gear that they already have. Um, likelihood is they'll have to make new shit. Um, also, external fuel pods in general just kill the stealthiness, right? Um, it makes the plane more visible on radar. And um, apparently the Navy said that they want to evaluate how you know useful stealth is for air tankers. But let's be real. Like shit like the S-400 missile system and some of the other missiles that I described before, you know, they make it really hard for you not to want stealth in anything coming close to defended airspace, right? That shit's going to get shot out the sky. Um there's also some reason to believe that the Navy is like exploring um, making it a multi-role aircraft. Again, so refueling, spying, electronic warfare, ground warfare, which again, like reminds me of the Bradley armored fighting vehicle when they were like, we need a troop carrier. And then a bunch of generals are like, okay, cool. We need a troop carrier with a massive gun on it. Okay, we also needed to have like anti-tank missiles. Okay, we also needed to have like fucking armor, you know, like all this other shit. So... You know, the likelihood is for you guys who want more information on the Bradley fighting vehicle, listen to our episode called the Pentagon Wars. Um, it's a play off a movie of the same name called the Pentagon Wars. It's about it stars Kelsey Grammer. It's actually really and funny. It's it's a, it's very it's a comedy and it's about this vehicle called the Bradley fighting vehicle. And it's basically about how um, these generals in the Pentagon had all these demands and all these demands on this vehicle and each demand made it more useless and more useless and it was incredibly expensive and it it was a, it's based off a true story but listen to that podcast if you want more context on the Bradley fighting vehicle definitely so 
in all, there's three, I think, major players that have bids on building something like this. And I think they're building them to spec like way beyond what the Navy requires of them because they have an eye for the future and they're not dumb. And they're probably thinking like, shit, the Navy's going to like drop some new shit on us. So we might as well build something that, you know, Swiss Army knife, you know, it does everything. Um, so that we got Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, and also uh, a partnership between Boeing and General Atomic. General Atomic, by the way, makes the Predator drone that everybody knows. Um, yeah, Boeing is on there twice. Um, but uh, it's not really looking so great. Uh, I know that Northrop Grumman, they pulled their uh, X-47, which was the presumed front runner for the program back in like 2017. Um and I think all of this might be just kind of a bad idea in general because we're basically developing extremely expensive band-aids for like a more pervasive problem, right? Um, I mean, what do you think about that? Um, no, I think a band-aid is, is the perfect um, way to describe it. Like, I'm always pretty skeptical whenever they try to make an all-purpose vehicle or aircraft that does everything. Mm-hmm. When you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing well. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. you try to do a little bit of everything. Like, oh, I got a stealth shooter. It's stealth. It goes fast. It has a large range. It just it always ends up not doing one thing really good. Yeah, like I rather have something. I rather have something that specializes in something rather than. Yeah, definitely. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? Absol- Am I making sense? No, abs- absolutely. And I think that's kind of like some of the biggest, you know, criticisms of, of these programs. That I think, it, it, you know, to peel this back even further, it's it's just even developing like a really big, like an awesome tanker that'll do just being an air tanker. I think this is not addressing the actual problem. The actual problem is that there's fucking missiles that can destroy aircraft carriers, you know? That's the big problem, right? So you need to like fix that somehow. You know, not fix the pl- not, not trying to make the planes better than the missiles because the missiles are faster. You know, uh, you can't make you cannot range, make like, a a plane that's faster than a missile. Y- yeah, you, it's impossible. You like I mean, it's it's, it's physically possible, it's, but it's not going to be practical. Right? It's not well. It's not practical. But is it is it even physically possible to create a plane that moves faster? Than a missile. I mean, maybe if we just make rocket ship planes, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Yeah, like, would that even be safe for the pilot? <laughs> you would like literally glue yourself to like you'd be like Jello in the back of the seat. No, I'm serious. Would that even be safe for a pilot? No, it wouldn't. If you're going, I, if you're going Mach five. Well, it's it's not necessarily going <laughs> or Mach, Mach eight. Five how how fast is a how fast is a ballistic missile move or a cruise missile <laughs> fast move? Fast as fuck. But let me tell you, fast way faster than a plane. It's, it's not the it's not the speed that's bad. It's the acceleration, right? Because you can you can go Mach a million if you wanted to. You can go to the speed of light so long as you don't accelerate from zero to the speed of light in like fucking two seconds, you know? You'll end up at like a pancake, right? Exactly. If you do it gradually over time, then yeah, sure, you can go as fast as you fucking want, but the problem is that like you don't have the luxury of time, right? You can't go, you can't move that slowly and also avoid a fucking cruise missile, you know? So... You know, with that in mind, I had a couple of interesting. Wait, let, let's let's paint this picture. Sure. So the average plane, so an average F, the F thirty five, is there speed? The F thirty five speeds listed, right? Yeah, it's the F twenty two that. Um, F, that the F twenty two has a confidential speed, right? Yeah. So, so the F twenty F thirty five, or or let's just say an F sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, well, F thirty five speed, it's Mach one point six. That's like twelve hundred miles an hour, uh, or for. You know, the metric folks. So, so how fast? How fast is a missile? 
from an S three hundred or Let's an S four hundred. I actually don't remember that. So I'm gonna think. I think it's like Mach five. It's Mach five or Mach between Mach five to Mach eight, something like that. It goes. It goes three to six times faster than. Okay, so I'm really bad at like conversions. A fourth here generation or fifth generation. I'm really plane. bad at conversions here because it's fucking fast. And I know that it's fast because they're listing it as meters per second instead of miles per hour. Um, it's 4,800 meters per second. I Let me try and see if I can find it like a miles per hour or like kilometers an hour on that. I think it's Mach. I want to say Mach 8. Maybe I'm completely off bounds right there. Hmm. Yeah, everything I'm getting right now is like meters per second. So let's let's just trust that my math isn't bad. I think 4,800 meters per second is much faster than 1,200 miles per hour. <laughs> it's it, guaranteed ah, much I found, faster. I found something. Okay, uh, it's 17,000 kilometers an hour <laughs> as opposed okay. to 2,000 kilometers an hour. So it's like much fucking faster, you know? It's much it's much faster. So that's... It's, it's ridiculous. Eight times faster. Right. More than eight times faster. It's fucking ridiculous, right? So what, Mach 8.6 or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Right. And, it, like, you know, the, the critics, are, uh, you know, probably a bunch of people will say, what about, like, all of the anti-missile defense systems that are, like, on the carriers? Like, that'll help. It's like, yeah, maybe. But but when a bunch are launched at you, yeah, exactly. how can you shoot them all down? Our Millennium Challenge episode, we talked about how, you know, we, we did this war game. Uh, you know, with some unnamed, it was definitely Iran, unnamed Middle Eastern. Or Turkey. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, unnamed Middle Eastern country, right? And basically the play was we sent a fucking super carrier strike group and like all the fucking guns blazing and they took us down with a swarm of boats. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like that that's not an issue. So here. Um, Unconventional warfare works. Yeah. That's why we haven't won in Afghanistan a- to tie it back. Man. Yeah. A- it doesn't matter if you have geography and if you have mountains to hide in or if you have some type of geographic advantage or you have the a political advantage of defending your own country and you're willing to launch suicide speedboats and shoot millions of Korean cruise missiles at once, you have an advantage. Right. Right. There's nothing beats that advantage. So again, coming back to the issue is that you know we're trying to make these you know either you know better guns on the supercarriers to make them more resistant to missiles, or we're saying hey we got to make this crazy air refueling system so that we could just fly planes farther and keep the carriers out of like harm's way. I don't think this is addressing the issue. You know, the issue really is that is is these missile systems, right? And the way that we're that we're fighting war. So I've got a few crazy ass ideas that were that i was reading about um that we can potentially pursue for the future so here's the first one ditch the carriers let's let's break that shit up use smaller carrier systems and make a carrier swarm basically instead of a you know fucking island that floats in the in the sea just make a regular size boat and you just you know quadruple octuple it up you know put them in a bunch of different places this way you, you maybe you can sink one or two but you definitely can't sink them all and by the time you start shooting we're are, we've already got jets scrambled and we'll fuck you up right that's an option but you know dishing giant awesome looking carriers i don't know 
uh, that's not going to be politically popular hard to part with you know because these things are that doesn't that doesn't go with make america great again no, no Danny. it doesn't we, we need smaller <laughs> ships what no no i don't like the sound of that um okay we need bigger ships bigger ones big, just make bigger just, bigger I, we need a, just uh, one giant you, massive uh, we, death we need, star yeah we need ship. a death star yeah uh so uh here's another one we can switch to just straight up cheap ass drones right just cheap drones, no manned fighters anymore. By um, cheap, you mean like $120 million of unit, right? Yeah, yeah, relatively cheap. <laughs> yeah, cheap. You know? but like unmanned fighters, like who cares if they need to make it back or not, right? Like who cares about the return trip? Just, you know, fucking do it Iran Houthi style. You know, no return flight means no need to refuel. And you can park the, the damn aircraft carrier as far as you want, you know? So that's an option, right? Uh, I'm sure the... I'm sure the um, who who uh, makes a who who's the biggest manufacturer of drones? I don't know, but maybe they would maybe be happy. General Atomic or Lockheed Martin. General General Atomic, something like that. Bo- is Boeing? Boeing they makes all, drones, they right? They all make drones. I'm just they, not they sure all who make makes, drones, who makes but who the who, who the, the person who would win the contract on that? Mm-hmm. Just sending out drones to sink in water afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Jesus! That, Imagine that scuba diving trip. Yeah, that doesn't sound um, that doesn't sound great either. <laughs> yeah. <it's> like, <laughs> oh yeah, we just send a drone and we just park it in the water. No, we just blow it. It goes up back and, like, and it, who cares? <laughs> we try to land it on Osama bin Laden's uh, uh-huh. watery grave. So, uh, all right. How about uh, okay? This one was actually pretty interesting, and I'm really interested in this one. I think this one could could work, but it's predicated on ditching carriers again. So we ditch the carriers. Why? Because they're fucking expensive, and like clearly, it's not like it's not working out. But what we do in in turn, we use that money to develop these ideas that they're carrier subs that's a submarine that is an aircraft carrier just wrap your head around that for a second it goes under the water right so that's that makes it like unequivocally much safer you can make it just as stealthy as you know uh our current uh submarines which are absolutely badass by the way uh that means that they can penetrate super far into the shores they can launch cruise missiles pretty close uh, but the cool thing is that they can launch, you know, a, a carrier sub. This idea could potentially launch manned or preferably unmanned planes and shit, right? So can we call that ship the Megalodon? Sure, that'd be a fucking badass name, Megalodon class carrier sub. I love it. I just typed in Megalodon in Google, and the first thing that pops up is Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. The film. Nice. I want to see that. Um, maybe we'll review it on the next episode. <laughs> um, but I actually think that might be a really good idea, just generally speaking, because I think it addresses a couple of things, right? If it's under the water, it's it's much harder to track, much harder to strike. And, you know, you, we'd be sacrificing some of the, you know, air superiority uh, functionality of it. But if we couple this with some unmanned drones and things like that, I think it could make it really fucking dangerous. And we can still project a lot of air power and just power in general using it. So I, I kind of like this one. But again, pulling away from these carriers, that's going to be that's going to be a hard sell. Um, here's another option. Uh, we can ditch everything and just make better missile systems, <laughs> you know. Uh, so no carriers, no airplanes, no F-35s, none of that. We just have dope ass missile systems. We put them on subs or smaller ships, things like that. That's what Ron Paul said. Yep. Yeah, Ron Paul said, "Defend this country with a bunch of submarines." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a pretty good idea. Submarines are expensive <laughs> too, but like he's like he's like we can defend this country with a bunch of submarines. Come on, he, he was. <laughs> um, 
that, or you can or you can just get everyone and then in addition to that if they break the lines have everyone completely trained with firearms yeah like switzerland yeah yeah that's true and then but see the thing about welcome to america <laughs> boom <laughs> well just make sure that they come in through texas welcome to america china man <laughs> um uh, well so so getting rid of like like i like the idea in principle um for missile systems like just getting better at that and maybe just doing attack subs and shit like that 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 could probably work really well um but that would leave um kind of onshore air support you know like high and dry like if you're boots on the ground in some foreign country you know right now uh yeah they they rely very heavily on close air support um so that would that would suck for them um but i guess kind of the last um crazy idea henry what do you think the last crazy idea is? Just uh, bounce from all these wars. <laughs> yep, you got it. Just ditch the foreign interventions in general, and none of this is a problem anymore. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that um, we have industries that need to be subsidized, and we can leave the foreign wars, but this mill, this. Um, the MIC is uh, never going away. Yeah. Um, I think we could probably end on that then. <laughs> yeah. So before we wrap this up, let's talk about that that volcano explosion that recently happened. Yeah, dude. Fucking volcano in New Zealand exploded. And for like a minute, there was no signs of life. And nobody knew what the really? hell was going on. How fucking crazy is that? That is crazy. Have you ever... Did anyone die? Yeah, dude. People... Well, now they're confirming deaths, but, like, for a minute, radio silence. Nothing. No signs of life. Nothing. Do you know how how far... Like, how... Well, so... How how big the blast radius was? uh, It was on White Island, uh, which is... I had this up before. Let me find it. It's kind of, like, off the coast... Off the north, uh, northeast coast of the bigger uh, areas, like where Auckland is, that that bigger island. Um, I don't know if there were any like onshore issues that happened. This is like a pretty recent developing thing, so I just found it interesting and 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 wanted to get your take on it and see like, you know, how nuts is it? Like you volcanoes live on an are fucking interesting. Just blows up. Volcanoes are really interesting. If you ever look at them, I think I'm convinced that humanity will be destroyed by a volcano. Well, for a really long time, I was super scared about the super uh, volcano that's like in Yellowstone and shit. Oh, yeah. I was about to talk about that. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard about that. That they say that it has like a point oh 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 one percent chance of going off every year. Yep. That's enough of a percent to better for that for it to happen. Better odds than winning the lottery. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But all right, so let's say if a blast, like I think the big the big blast throughout human history, at the very least, mm-hmm. were Pompeii. the well Pompeii. But there was bigger blasts that in more recent history. Krakatoa. There was Mount Tim- yeah Krakatoa and Mount Tambora. Mm-hmm. Both of those, they were both, I believe, in Indonesia. Yeah, both of these volcanoes, and they just exploded. The Ring of Fire. And yeah, I know Mount Tambora. And I think Krakatoa as well. They caused a global warming yep. because they covered, or excuse me, vice versa. They caused an ice age, global like a mini cooling, ice age. Right? Because what it does is it kicks up a ton of like dirt and like smoke and shit like that. 
into the atmosphere. And then what happens is it actually, you know, um, reflects the sunlight rather than capturing the sunlight. Like that's what global warming would do. Um, so maybe blessing in disguise. We should have more more volcanoes to avert. Well, co- with, with Tambora, with, well, no, because that's going to cause a huge problem. So <laughs> yeah. with when mountain when mountain Bora went off, I think it was in eighteen fifteen. That literally caused like famine. Yeah, like it causes famine right. because the crops the blast will, yeah. the crops can't grow if the temperature lowers by like a you know, 10, 10 degrees like that, yeah. per year. Then that's going to be a lot of suffering for a lot of people who are depending on agriculture. Mostly it's going to affect people in the third world. And when that happened in the 1815s, that caused a lot of damage. It caused a lot of damage to agriculture and to the economies of both America and Europe Mm -hmm. and countless other places. So they're definitely they're, they're catastrophic events. If a blast like that went off in the U.S., there'd be you'd need there'd be refugees everywhere. Like if there was a blast that went off, like that Yellowstone mm-hmm. um, volcano, if that super went off, volcano, yeah, that super volcano, that would kill pretty much everyone Everybody. in in the Northwest, like everyone within that, everybody, everyone the on the West Coast, of the country, and then everybody else would suffer and probably die. Everyone else would suffer, but it would also cause a huge refugee crisis as well because people from the West Coast would have to migrate over to the East Coast. Well, they wouldn't be able to get past the volcano. <laughs> They'd have to go somewhere people, else. People in the, so- in, in the South, like in, in, uh, in the Southwest, like from go to California, Mexico. they could go to Mexico, but they're probably, they'd probably rather go to the East Coast of the U.S. I'm just saying that volcano's right in the middle of the country, so good luck crossing the volcano, you know? They'll be able to cross it, right? If they, they, I mean, there's the blast. It's just one blast. So after the blast, yeah, the they, blast can, they can. Like it's, I've, it's been a really long time since I researched that super. It's just like an explosion that goes off. Dude, like it, I don't know what the mass, rivers of. Oh, I'm gonna look this up right now because it it's like crazy. Uh, Yellowstone. But the blast doesn't last forever. Like it's no. just a blast, and then it oozes volcano of uh, lava, and then you can move <laughs> over the volcano. <laughs> It doesn't take up the entire country. <laughs> okay, what would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Let's see. <laughs> I'm reading a Vox article, so take this with a grain of salt. It's just the first thing that came up. I watched the YouTube video on this years ago, and now I'm a subject <laughs> I matter expert. on YouTube, and he said this is what's going to What's happen. this? Uh, real Life Lore? <laughs> you ever watch that yeah, YouTube yeah, channel? I, have, actually, I love yeah. that YouTube channel. I watch it all the time. I'm like, whoo um, real life lore. You get a free advertisement right here. <laughs> um, so it would be a thousand times more powerful than a regular volcanic eruption. So think about like one thousand New Zealand, um, uh, volcanoes. Uh, about two hundred and forty cubic miles. Jesus, cubic miles of material, and uh, uh, would be kicked up into the uh sky. And it would last for weeks or months. Lava flows themselves would be contained within a rel- relatively small radius, like basically the park or so, about 40 miles. So maybe, yeah, you could probably get around that for sure. But it's really like the volcanic ash and dust that would be like falling for weeks. Probably for years, right? Weeks or months, they're saying. Um, so that would be terrible. You definitely wouldn't be able to fly, you know, because it would be, be kind of hard to get around. And then it says Pinatubo eruption in 1991 cooled the planet by one degree Celsius for a few years. 
and the Tambora um, eruption in 1815 that you talked about cooled the planet enough to damage crops around the world, possibly leading to famines in some areas. And uh, there was some after volcanoes that happened as well. Um, I forgot. It's it's not really telling me the stat, but uh, I remember seeing something a long time ago about like the force of the blast would be like several nuclear bombs, you know, like just crazy, crazy amount of force that would come out of it. It would devastate shit. So did you ever hear this story from National Geographic? It was about Pompeii. Mm-hmm. And it was the headline was man like evidence of man who escapes Pompeo Pompeii Pompeo Pompeo <laughs> I get it confused now <laughs> escapes fat man um, evidence shows man escapes from Pompeii but is crushed from rock from volcano afterwards I believe and it. Yep. Did you do you did you read that? Do you I, remember that article? I, I, it was like I didn't read it was like one, front no. page news. It was like very it was it went viral. That's hilarious. And I people mean, were it sucks for him, but everyone was laughing at it. It was like ha, like it's like Ralph from the guy escapes Ralph Pompeii from, from um, the Simpsons shows up and goes ha ha. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because it happened so long ago that we can we can laugh at the tragedy. Yeah, it's, it's not too soon. <laughs> it's not too. All right, come on. It's two thousand years ago. We can we can make we can make jokes about you getting killed by a rock from a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a pretty bad. Felt like that's your Jesus. Way to die though, when you think about it, right? Yeah, escape a volcano. Well, like you're at the pearly I picture gates. It, I picture him running, and then all of a sudden, like, ooh, I got, I made it, and then like wiping the sweat off his head. Oh man, I made it! And then all of a sudden, you hear like the comic, like piano, comically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be like a cartoon. That's exactly how I feel. And then he turns into like a accordion afterwards. <laughs> Is that what happens in a cartoon? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, let's wrap this thing up. I'm cool, man. It's it is late and. We both have to wake up early. Yeah, so I do, I right. do have something to say. Just um, you know, again, shout out Robert Colbert um, for the the request about um, you know super ta- uh, air air refueling tankers. Um, in topic, I was super interested about. Wish I could have got to it earlier. Um, but if you have you know topics that you'd be interested in hearing about, a really great way to get our attention uh, is leave us a review. Leave us a review and tell us what you want to hear about, and uh, we'll consider it. Yeah, rate and review the podcast. It is a tremendous help. All right, let's bounce. Oh, yeah, follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter links will be in the footnotes. And, yeah, we'll see you next time. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.